The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Scripture reference this morning for our sermon is Acts chapter 1, reading verses 4 and 5. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have come to this moment. And God, I pray you would help me not to trust in my preparation. Indeed, we have prepared. We have sang. We have read Scripture together. We have this moment. The sermon is prepared, but we are like Elijah laying out the sacrifice, cut into pieces, laid in order, and yet we cannot call the fire down. Oh God, you must come by your Spirit. Let your glory fall. Let your Spirit come. Let Christ be lifted up. I pray that your word would move in power, that our hearts would be opened up, the eyes of our heart would see you. All is vain unless the Spirit of the living God should fall. Do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm very aware that this sermon comes before Thanksgiving. And I'm very aware for what That will mean for some of you. Some of you, it will mean not traveling. Some of you, it probably will mean traveling. It will mean interacting with family members, maybe extended family members. And for some, this is an awkward time. This is a difficult time. This is a time when there's going to be probably hard conversations, probably awkward moments, probably complicated, controversial issues. Family life can be like that. And yet, rather than approaching this Thanksgiving and family interactions with a sense of dread, we are called as Christians to anticipate this with a sense of opportunity, opportunity to speak Christ. When the early church in the book of Acts saw darkness, saw difficulty, they saw it not as a chance to shrink back, but a chance for the light to shine, a chance for the darkness to be pushed back. What we need as a church is that sense of praying for one another, that these moments where we're going to have connection and contact with family, lost family members. This is what we're here for. 
That sense of not shrinking back from it, but stepping into it. Like the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us, what? That God may open to us a door for the Word. What if rather than kind of dreading that interaction, that conversation, you, you see that, that Zoom call or that conversation or that family time as a, a door for the Word? God, open that door for the Word. All of these interactions, make them a door for the Word, not an opportunity for conflict and controversy. Open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What a prayer! Not for an opportunity to declare your outrage over mass. I I just think, if, if you think about 2020 as the year of mask wearing, I want to challenge you to think about what do you think heaven is going to be like? Do you think heaven is going to remember 2020 and we're going to say, remember when we all had to wear masks? What if 2020 is remembered as the time when your loved one came to faith in Christ? What if that was the year that they became saved? Rather than open a door to discuss current controversy, open a door to speak Christ. Jesus, in his death, resurrection, ascension, reign, return, still the main story of 2020. It's not even close. And so, as we think about the the call that is upon us, how do we not shrink back? How do we not feel like, I don't know that I can do it? This is where verses 4 and 5 answer the question directly, how? Let's read it again. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. How can we speak Christ with confidence rather than enter into thanksgiving conversations with kind of cynical, fearful dread? The answer is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in this text, the giving of the Holy Spirit is presented in an echo effect uh, in three different ways. The pouring out of the Spirit is called, number one, the promise of the Father, first part of verse 4. Then the the pouring out of the Spirit is is said to be the the teaching of Christ, end of verse 4. And then, In verse 5, it's called the testimony of John the Baptist. 
So the pouring out of the Spirit is the promise of the Father, the teaching of Jesus, and the testimony of John the Baptist. This echo effect is trying to help us see how essential the giving of the Spirit is for us to be witnesses. So let's take it one at a time and we'll build to the main point. Look first at the promise of the Father here in verse 4. Notice, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. So this text begins by declaring the pouring out of the Spirit is the promise of the Father, and Luke sets up the stage by saying he was staying with them. Now that word staying could be translated staying, but it also can mean while eating with them. And I think most commentators and translators are right probably in translating this while eating with them. So, so imagine the scene. In verse 4, you've got three components. You've got he was eating with them. He told them not to leave Jerusalem, not to depart the city. And he also urged them to wait for the promise of the Father. And if you've been reading the Gospel of Luke, you will know when this happened because it happens right at the end of Luke's gospel. Those three things happen. This identical scene at the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus came to them and he was going to prove to them again that he's not a ghost, but that he has flesh and blood and bones. Touch me, see me. And then he says, while they were disbelieving in their joy, he says, got any fish? And remember, he eats broiled fish with them. Then what happens? While he ate with them, what happened? Luke 24, 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Notice that. Here he is, he's saying the Scriptures are laying this out, that the Messiah would come, he would suffer, he would rise on the third day, and then the gospel is going to be proclaimed, repentance, in the name of Jesus for all the nations, and it will begin in Jerusalem. That's all in the Scriptures. Then what does he say? You are witnesses of these things, and behold... I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's where we hear it again. So eating with them says the promise of the Father is coming. Stay in the city. Right? That's the third part. Eating with them, promise of the Father, don't depart the city. Wait there until you are clothed with power from on high. So there's, there's a couple of questions here. The first one has to be, where in the Old Testament does it say, if this is according to the Scriptures, that this is supposed to start from Jerusalem? That they shouldn't leave that city because that's where this is going to happen. Many places, but you can imagine, Isaiah does have something to say clearly about this. Isaiah chapter 2, I think this is the clearest place. 
Isaiah 2, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? What are all the nations coming to hear? That he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The scriptures make it clear this restored people of God are supposed to be in Jerusalem, and the word of the Lord is going to come to the nations from Jerusalem. And in Isaiah, what you hear is that these people, this restored people of God, they're going to speak the word how? When is that going to happen? What's going to happen in the latter days that enables and empowers them to speak the word? Well, Isaiah 43 answers this question, verse 10 and verse 12, by saying, I am the one I am the one who saves. I am the one who declares this. And you are my witnesses. And then in Isaiah 44, he says how this is going to happen. Isaiah 44, verse 1. Now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. Here it is. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So if you're following along, there's going to be a, a restored people of God, right? Why are the disciples 12? Twelve tribes of Israel. We're going to hear later on there's going to be a twelfth to replace Judas because there's got to be twelve. This restored people is now going to be the place in Jerusalem from which the word of the Lord comes of the gospel of forgiveness to all the nations. And it's not going to happen. They're not going to be witnesses until God pours out His Spirit. So if we're talking about the promise of the Father, Jesus is saying, this was promised in the Old Testament. You were supposed to be waiting for this moment. God has testified about it in His Word. And now Jesus is making it clear, opening their minds to understand these things. But remember, it wasn't just that Jesus is appealing to the Old Testament and the promise of the Father, this pouring out of the Spirit, he adds to it. And he says, you also heard this from me. You see that at the end of verse 4? Which he said, you heard from me. So the pouring out of the Spirit isn't just the promise of the Father, but the teaching of the Son. Isn't this beautifully Trinitarian? You've got the pouring out of the third person of the Trinity, 
promised by the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity saying, remember I told you this? Remember I laid this out for you? Well, he does this many times, especially if you look through John 14, 15, and 16. He just keeps telling them that he is going to go away and that actually it's better for them if he goes away, which sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? He's saying this is going to be the answer to the sorrow that's in your heart. Right now you feel sorrowful, but it is for your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, I will send the helper, the spirit of truth. And what will the spirit of truth do? He will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify me. He will lead you into all truth. The Spirit bears witness of me, and by the Spirit, Jesus says, you will bear witness to me. He's saying you're not going to be witnesses until you have the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go a little bit further. Why is it to their advantage if Jesus goes away and the Spirit comes? Jesus says in John 16, already hinting at why you need the Spirit, because John 16, 8, when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Until He comes... There's going to be no conviction when you witness of me. There's going to be no power to convict human hearts. Now let's let's go a little deeper yet. One of the things I love about reading Luke and Acts is if you wonder to yourself, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Don't you want to know which ones he went to? Don't you want to know, like, in this Old Testament survey with Jesus? Like, I would sign up for that. What text did he go to, right? What did he lay out before them? Do you know that we actually know? If you read the book of Acts and you start hearing the preaching of the disciples, where do you think they learned to go to Psalm 16 with the resurrection? And where do you think they learned to go to Joel 2 to talk about the pouring out of the Spirit? They learned it from Jesus. He's the one that pointed them to these Scriptures, opened their minds so that when they preach them, they're preaching what Jesus taught them. They're not making this stuff up. And Joel chapter 2 is where this is promised, I will pour out my Spirit. I will pour out my Spirit. And then, Joel 2, verse 32, then it will come to pass, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's when it's going to happen. There's not going to be this salvation, this conviction, this reception of me until I pour out my Spirit. So we've covered a lot of ground in terms of in the Old Testament promise of the Father, John 14 to 16 in the teaching of Jesus. But we've got to go back to the beginning of Luke for the third echo effect 
of the pouring out of the Spirit, John the Baptist. Look at it in verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Luke is taking us all the way back to Luke chapter 3, verse 16. And he's saying, highlighting, remember, we already touched on this. John the Baptist, in his testimony, when the people were coming to him and saying, could this one be the Christ? This is what John the Baptist said as all people were coming to him and in expectation and questioning in their hearts about John, whether he might be the Christ. Luke 3.16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John here is zealous for all the people wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this what we're waiting for? John just puts himself in a different class and saying, no, 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 no. Don't confuse us. You know the chief characteristic in my ministry that I can use water and I can immerse people in water? The one who's coming is way mightier than I am. I just use water. He immerses you in the Holy Spirit. Who else could have such control over the Holy Spirit to use the Spirit like John is using water to immerse people, saying the Messiah, when He comes, He's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. And now, did you see what he added in verse 5 of Acts 1? This is going to happen not many days from now. He's setting up Pentecost, right? He's saying, this all is going to happen. You've got to wait for it because it's going to happen in Jerusalem on Pentecost. So, as we look at this text, here I think is the main point. The main point of Acts 1, 4, and 5 is really simple. Wait for the promised outpouring of the Spirit. Wait. If you want to have a one-word command, main point, it's that. Wait. It's like walking out here and trying to cross the street, pushing the button. Wait. 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 That's a pretty good impression, actually. That's what it sounds like. What he's saying is so stupendous that I want you to feel the weight of it. The weight of the word Wait. Imagine this. These disciples, what have they already received in the narrative so far? They were directly called by Jesus, called to make fishers of men. Lay down your nets. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Directly called by him. And then they got to witness his miracles. They saw him still the storm and walk on the water and cast out demons and and heal the sick. And then they got to hear his teaching again and again and again and then ask him questions and he would explain things. 
And then he called them out into ministry, gave them experience, gave them authority so they could go out and cast out demons and preach and heal. And then they got to see his death. And then they got to see his resurrection as he appeared to them. The resurrected Christ appeared to them many times to prove he was alive. And after all of this, opening their minds to understand the scriptures, knowing what the message was they were to preach, he says, wait. If this was John Piper, this would be a moment where he'd go, (gasps) (laughs) it's stunning, isn't it? You would have thought that if anybody was ready, it would be them. But he says, you don't have what you need. With all this talk in our day about during the pandemic, who is an essential worker? Who needs to keep working? The book of Acts has one essential worker. And it is the Holy Spirit. And without the Spirit, there would be no salvation. There would be no conviction. There would be no one that would respond to the message. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. I'm just so convinced of this. You would have thought these men, therefore, were now in a perfect position to go out to preach, but according to our Lord's teaching, they were not. They seem to have all the necessary knowledge, but that knowledge is not enough. Something further is needed. It is indeed essential. The knowledge is vital because you can't be witnesses without it, but to be effective witnesses You need the power and the unction and the demonstration of the Spirit. Now, if this was necessary for these men, how much more necessary is it for us? Do you feel the weight of the word weight? Do you really think that your knowledge is going to be enough? You think, if I just say the right word at the right time, with the right attitude, nothing without the Spirit. So, if the Spirit is essential for our witness, what do we do now that we're post-Pentecost? Like, the Spirit's been poured out, How do we now seek the Spirit's power? If we want to be witnesses, how do we now, after the Spirit's been poured out, how do we now seek the Spirit's power? Biggest mistake that many people make is to try to seek the Spirit directly. To try to wait and and pray for the Holy Spirit to work without realizing the Spirit, Jesus says, You're supposed to pursue him indirectly, not directly. Remember the nature of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity, hiding himself, not putting himself forward, always putting the spotlight on Christ, saying, I'm going to glorify Christ by taking what is Christ and 
magnifying it, declaring it, shining the light on it. So if we're going to pursue the Spirit, we don't do it directly, but indirectly. This is the way that Pastor John says it. This is so right. Quote, In seeking to be filled and empowered by the Spirit, we must pursue Him indirectly. We must directly look to the wonder of Christ. If we look away from Jesus and seek the Spirit and His power directly, we will end up in the mire, M-I-R-E, not M-E-Y-E-R. I always, when I see that word, I'm like, couldn't I rhyme with another kind of word? Mire. End up in the mire of our own subjective emotions. The Spirit does not reveal Himself. The Spirit reveals Christ. The fullness of the Spirit is the fullness that He gives as we gaze on Christ. The power of the Spirit is the power we feel in the presence of Christ. The joy of the Spirit is the joy we feel from the promises of Christ. Many of us know what it is like to crouch on the floor and cry out to the Holy Spirit for joy and power and experience nothing. But the next day, devote ourselves to eagerly meditate on the glory of Jesus Christ and find ourselves filled with the Spirit. Do you see what he's saying? This is what Bible teachers for centuries have taught, from the Puritans to Lloyd-Jones to Piper. This is the truth. Coming from Jesus, the Spirit is given to reveal Jesus, which means the question we have to ask, how do we know if the Spirit is moving, if the Spirit is at work? Here's the question. Is Jesus real to you? That's how you know. How do you know if the Spirit's moving? Is Jesus real to you? That is, he's not a philosophy. He's not an idea. He's not a teaching. He's a person. And you know him and, and your heart is engaged and alive and loving him. Why do you think, even though we don't see him now, but believe in him and love him, where does that come from? It comes from the moving of the Holy Spirit. If right now Jesus means anything to you, it is because the Spirit is moving, is at work. When you think that Jesus came to earth, that he left the courts of glory, and that he came, and that he died, and that he rose, and that he's reigning, and that he's returning, and that he, he did it all to save you so you would be with him forever. If that means the world to you, then that is the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can't take credit for it. It is the Spirit shining the spotlight in your heart on Jesus, and you're saying, yes. And that is the only hope. When we share him with anyone else, that when we share him, Jesus wouldn't be served cold by us. That we're speaking about him in some cerebral way. 
but that if the Spirit is moving in our hearts, we're serving Christ hot. And our hope is that as we serve Jesus hot, the same Spirit that's moving and working in our heart would be moving and working in their hearts. Why is it better that Jesus would go away? i ask you that at home too. Why would it be better? Why would the Spirit being in us be better than the Jesus beside us? This sounds a little ludicrous to me. When I think, I think I'd rather have Jesus right beside me, thank you. Well, here's what the Bible's saying. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I am going to come to you by the Spirit. What was the problem? Why is this better? When Jesus was on earth, his ministry was limited because it was localized. When he was working in Judea, it meant he wasn't working in Samaria. When he was working in Jerusalem, it means he wasn't working in Galilee. And are you glad that you don't have to wonder where Jesus is going to show up next time? Like, you got Jesus for Thanksgiving last year. I should get him this year. He showed up in your conversation last time. It's my turn. The Spirit is given so that when Jesus is spoken by the Spirit, he can be in every Thanksgiving conversation. Because by the Spirit, Jesus is no longer limited and localized. He is with us always. He is everywhere. He can be in every conversation. It's better that Jesus be reigning and sending the Spirit and not leaving us as orphans. You are not on your own in any conversation you are ever going to have. And here's why that matters, okay? Here, here comes the challenge. Just be ready for it. I'm going to set it up with a story. This was so challenging to me this week. Here's a story. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, it's only one boat. But the few devoted members kept constant watch over the sea. With no thought of themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. This wonderful little station saved many lives, and over time it became well known. And some of those who were saved were so thankful that they sought to become associated with the station, give of their time, their money, and effort for the support of the work. They bought new boats. New crews were trained. The little life-saving station began to grow. Some of the members of the life-saving station became unhappy that the building was crude and poorly equipped. They wanted a more comfortable place to be provided as the first refuge when people would be saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the bigger building. 
And gradually, the life-saving station became a popular place for its members to gather. And over time, they, they decorated it more, using it as a sort of club. Fewer members, however, were interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired people to do it, lifeboat crews to do the work. Oh, the, the life-saving station still had its life-saving motif. There was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club's initiations were held. About this time, there was a large ship that was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people, some who were dirty and sick. This beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee had a shower house built outside the club where dirty shipwreck victims could be cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club's membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether, having come to regard them as unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. And some members insisted upon life-saving as still the primary purpose of the club, pointed out they were called a life-saving station after all. But they were finally voted down and regarded as too old school, too outdated. And they were told if they wanted to save the lives of the various people shipwrecked in those waters, they should begin their own station down the coast. So they did. And as the years went by, the same thing that happened to that original station happened to the others as well. They evolved into clubs. And history has continued to repeat itself. So if you visit that seacoast today, you'll find clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks still happen, but most of the people drown. Now, that's a parable. You shouldn't ask, where is that station? What is that ocean? What is that coast? That is the history of the church. That's what we're talking about. When the church is called to be a witness to Jesus Christ, you'll look high and low in the book of Acts to find out if the church, part of the church is maybe interested in mission or hires people for witness. You can't separate the church from its witness. It's what the church is. And therefore, when the church, which is called to be a witness for Christ, becomes a club for Christ, it stops being a church. Hear me. I know that it's hard it's hard to witness for Christ. Sometimes we want to make life more comfortable and manageable, and so we get in these conversations with people, and we want to just be content with being regarded as being nice because it's awkward and uncomfortable to have to keep bringing up Jesus. But it's who we are. It's who we are. It's what we do. You'll be my witnesses. And he gave the Spirit, not so that we could argue about politics and mass, but so that we could share Christ and their hearts would be alive to Jesus like ours are. That's why we're a church. And therefore, we ought not to get off our mission to share Christ 
in the power of the Spirit. And could 2020 be the year, the breakthrough year, when your loved ones or my loved ones come to know Jesus? And if right now you don't know him, here's the word. It's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And for this reason, he had mercy on me that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience to everyone who would believe in him for eternal life. Right now, you here, you at home, what would happen if you were to come to Jesus recognizing all of your failure, all of your sin, and you wonder, would he receive me? Would I really belong to him? Would he really love me and forgive me? If there was a doctor that went out to a tribe that had a deadly disease, and he brought all the equipment with him, And he came there for that reason, to administer this healing medicine. How do you think he would feel if quite a few people said, no, we don't need that, but a few did? They said, okay. How do you think the doctor would feel? He would rejoice. That's why he came for that very reason. The Bible tells us Jesus came for this very reason that if the Spirit right now would be moving in any of your hearts to come to Him for forgiveness, there would be more joy in heaven. A party would be thrown over one person coming to Jesus than over 250 people staying safe in the fold. Come to Christ and have the joy of the Lord welcome you in. Let's pray. Father, would you save us from being a club? Save us from the cross just being a decoration. But our very witness, our very lifeblood, our very calling, God, save us from cynicism. It says, if I speak Christ again, just nothing will happen. Save us from a pride that as we witness, we think, I, I can say it well enough, I can argue it well enough. It's all vain unless the Spirit falls. So God, I pray, help us to yield to the Spirit's power and once again be the church that speaks Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. 
but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.